are going to follow the final week, the final days of Jesus, because um, the great truth is, is that the entire Word of God, actually history itself, um, all moves towards the events of that week. Um, it becomes the pinnacle event um, that they look forward to, and the one that we look back to that presses us forward. And so um, we want to make sure we pay attention to it, and we want to follow through that last week. We will cover... Um, five different um, places and days and places. Today we're going to look at the Sunday before the, uh, the crucifixion um, taking place on a highway. Um, the following week, um, actually in two weeks because we have something different next week, but um, in two weeks we'll look at the events of Monday and Tuesday of Passion Week, which all take place within the temple. Um, the third week we'll cover the events of Thursday, which happen in the upper room. And then on Good Friday, of course, we'll be looking at the cross followed by the, the resurrection, which takes place in all wonderful places, takes us back to the beginning in a garden and happens there. So we will be walking through that each week. Um, we'll do um, kind of just an overview of what happened on that day. Um, it's good for us to know what the Word says and what was taking place, and we'll try to piece that together very briefly. A couple key points of interest. There's always these little nuggets of stuff in there that we want to take a look at and pay attention to, and then primarily pick out one focal point of what God wants to speak to us in our hearts on that particular week, and that's what we will attempt to do um, this evening. By the way, we only, um, of course, in what, four or five messages, four or five times, in Good Fridays and, and Easter are usually pretty brief. Um, we're only covering like this much. So um, a great a habit during these weeks leading up to uh, Easter and stuff is just read, read through that, that Passion Week narratives out of the Gospels. Um, that week occupies 40% of the Gospels, is devoted just to one week's time. Um, and so we should pay attention to what's taking place. There's so much, and we're obviously not going to cover um, all of it. Um, by the way, uh, next, just, to, just remember, next week we're going to be hearing uh, of our worship time, and then the sermon time is actually going to be devoted to the Belize team are going to be sharing testimonies of how God um, touched their lives in that trip. Um, and so just to be praying for them as they begin to prepare for that. Just uh, listen as I read. I'm going to read just the, uh, the passage for tonight, which has to do with Jesus' procession into uh, Jerusalem, which we, we call Palm Sunday, which isn't today, but we're going to pretend it is anyways. And I'm going to read from the passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and this is out of Zechariah, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the full of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were all shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and said, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus 
who is from Nazareth in, Gal- in Galilee. So a couple things. This is as far as the overview. Um, the week started sometime in April, um, as far as we best can tell. Um, some people say this was like 8029. Other people say it's 8033, but it's in there somewhere depending on how you uh, judge the calendar. Um, the, the events that happen here all revolve around the day on a Sunday. Um, normally, as, as we said, we usually do it the Sunday before Easter, calling it Palm Sunday. For them, though, they didn't call it Palm Sunday, of course. Um, it was the, the, the beginning of, of the uh, Passover uh, feast that was taking place. So um, they were, people would flock to Jerusalem for that particular feast, and this starts out right at the start of that. And all the events of Jesus, and even the things he says, and the way he talks about it, is all intertwined with the whole Passover celebration as, as um, Jesus applies himself to that very feast that they take place there. Um, interesting that they're coming into Jerusalem. His, um, and I want to picture, he's, he's this is procession that's going into Jerusalem, and we don't get the idea here. Like I, I went up to Phoenix this week. When I, when I came f- coming through the beautiful desert between here and Phoenix, you know, I didn't see Phoenix and going, wow, what a city. You know, I thought, I just want to go back to Tucson. You know, and you don't get that feeling here, but Jerusalem was like, um, people longed to see it. it. It held a different meaning than we hold to cities um, today. And so when people that would live outside of it that maybe not go there hardly ever, when they would arrive, it was like arrival at this is more than just a destination. Um, and they, they considered the city holy. Um, and even though the presence of God had left the temple, they still looked at Jerusalem as a picture of the presence of God in their midst, in the people. And so when they came, it wasn't a city. It was almost like a, um, an, animate, an animated object of life as they would go there and look for that place. And they looked at it as a focal point of where the divine and human intersected in the midst of their lives. And there was something about that. And so it's interesting that Jesus, who is divine and human, is arriving at that place. And there's this, this uh, gathering together of something is going to happen, and it's going to happen in this place, because this is where God acts and where God moves. The, six, the city um, estimates are around sixty to 80,000 people lived in Jerusalem at that time. During the Passover, it would have been at least three times that many people. So it went from, you know, 60,000 is a lot of people. Um, packed into a small space, and it would just overflow. So people would put tents up all over the place and um, use up the streets and, and outside around it, and it would just be filled up with people from all over the place. Um, there was always huge amount of expectation because around Passover there was always this, this longing for God to do something, to act and move again. Primarily they're thinking we want to have freedom from the Romans, and um, so there was always this sense of maybe something would happen. There would be an increased military presence. In other words, bring the police officers in because you never knew what was going to happen. And there was a, there was festival, a kind of a festive feeling like down the street here, like today with the, the street fair. But there was also, there was this religious um, air that, that rested over. This was a holy week to remember. And then there was this, this political shifting and changing and unrest. And so you felt like it was something was different there. And it was a mixed bag of all sorts of different things as the people moved into these places. Uh, Jesus um, would spend each day um, in Bethany, which was the house of Lazarus. And remember that just before this, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. As a matter of fact, one of the Gospels tells us that the people following Jesus, a huge portion of them, were those who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. So they're kind of following because this is incredible what's happened. What would happen next? And so, but they were friends of his. So Jesus would spend the night in Bethany. 
um, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, and then he would pass through Bethany, leave there, um, come up over the Mount of Olives and down to Jerusalem, and he, each day up until um, he was arrested, he would do that. He would um, come from Bethany, spend the day in Jerusalem. He would teach, it says, each day, and then he would go back um, to Bethany again, um, primarily for some peace probably. Um, also, just um, they were always looking for occasions to arrest him, and so he had to kind of keep, keep apart from that. Um, when Jesus would, um, I'd never been there, but um, my understanding is as, as Jesus would leave Bethany, he'd come up over, Jerusalem sat at about 2,500 feet, which is kind of like Tucson, right? So uh, similar to Tucson, um, the Mount of Olives was on a hill looking down over the city. So when they come over the Mount of Olives, um, they could look down at the city and this highway, this roadway, wound down from the Mount of Olives into the city. Anything coming down the roadway, everybody would see it. It was just, it was like, you couldn't really hide or sneak down there. It wasn't, if you were going to, you know, play capture the flag, you wouldn't use that road because everybody would see you coming. So they, but he came down that road and was very visible as they would, um, moved down. They would come down the Mount of Olives. They would cross what was called the valley, the Kidron Valley, and that word means red, um, kind of like kidney bean, you know. Um, and uh, it was actually it would sometimes have redness to it that was originally marked because at the back of the temple, the blood would be drained out the back sometimes, and so it made the ground red. So it's interesting that Jesus, the the one who's going to give his life as a sacrifice, each day would cross this this red valley as he would go into this holy city of Jerusalem to, uh, to bring his message. Um, as I said, the crowd would be hugely visible. He could not miss it in this particular story as they arrived with a, a, a multitude of people gathered around. Um, at a festive time, everybody would have seen them coming into the city. It was nothing secretive about it. The story basically has three parts. Um, you have this weird thing about Jesus sending the disciples into the city to, to find an animal. And this whole little exchange about, you know, when they ask you what you're doing with it, tell them that the Lord needs it, and they'll say, okay, it's kind of like a weird, like, why did he put that in there? It's kind of a strange little, little uh, thing there. But you have this first part of the story. The disciples are sent um, to go in and, and to get this, the donkey and the colt, which ends up being both. Um, and they obey in doing that. The second part of the story is Jesus um, riding into Jerusalem um, on this donkey, and their people are waving the palm branches and, and laying down their coats. And then the third part is there's a brief interaction uh, with the religious leaders at that time. Um, some, the, some of the passages make it look like he cleansed the temple at the same time, and some people think he cleansed the temple on this day. Some people think it's the next day, which I think it's the next day because I think it's Mark says that he just went into the temple, he looked around, and he departed again. Um, and, but while there's, people are singing out these praises, um, there's this interaction with the religious leaders who tell him to stop. Tell him to stop saying that. And so there's this uh, a bit of a confrontation. And you'll see as each week we look at this, the confrontation with the religious leaders increases in intensity every single day. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And Jesus does not try to stop that. He actually um, pushes the envelope with the things that he does. A couple key points of interest I just want to draw out um, through this. Number one, it's interesting that this whole thing with what's with the, the donkey and the colt and the palm branches and the coats. You know, I grew up in a church on Palm Sunday. As little kids, we all had to get those little... We had to make a little palm branch out of construction paper and, and walk down the thing and, and do our, whatever the whole song we had to sing. Um, I just felt silly, but um, we did that every year. And, uh, but he has this whole thing with this colt and this donkey and the people with the palm branches. Um, in Zechariah 9.9, it's actually prophesied that the coming Messiah would come on 
a colt or a donkey um, riding into Jerusalem. And so it even says here in verse 4 of Matthew 21, this was to fulfill what was spoken um, by the prophet Zechariah in a messianic prophecy about the king coming who's mounted on a donkey, the arrival of a king on a donkey, which is exactly what Jesus does. And um, the coats are being laid down, and actually it was fairly frequent for... um, Royal people or kings, when they come into the city, they would either lay coats over the animal or they would lay them down in front of them as a way to pay homage to them. Um, in Second Kings, actually, when Jehu is king, the people says they're casting their coats before him and they're shouting out, Jehu is king, and he rides into um, the city. And that is basically what is happening um, here. If Jesus was like the conquering hero um, to take over Jerusalem, he would have ridden it on a horse. Um, when they rode in a donkey, that was... The, the royalty coming in in a peaceful manner. It, in, it implied that um, it was already his place, um, and he was coming in peace. Interesting, in Revelation, it talks about he's going to come back again riding what? It talks about a white horse, and whatever that means, there's a very different arrival that he has on another day. But here we have him riding in um, in peace. And Psalm 118 was often looked at as a psalm of royal entry, which is exactly what they would have been shouting out and singing at the time. Um, the palm branches were usually used during the Feast of Booths. You remember they would go out and they'd make these booths. You remember their time in the desert? Um, some people think there was two entrances here, but they would have grabbed them or cut them down or picked them up, and they kind of waved them as a, a way to um, honor him. The thought comes to, though, the question about this is, what was Jesus doing when he did this? Um, all along, all he's been doing is telling people to keep it a secret. He's been keeping it quiet. He's been... Um, not making big waves purposely. And here he is going to come down the most visible path into the holy city at the pinnacle festival of the people at a time when everything is, everything is kind of tense. And he's going to make a big showing of this. So what is going on? And some people think that he's making offer of his kingship to the people. And some people think that he's actually declaring himself as already the king. And actually I think it's probably both. And we get that from a couple things here. Um, the riding in the donkey, as I said, was always done by a person of royalty as they came into a place to take their position. Um, now, the Romans didn't do that. They would just make a big show of force as they came in. But generally in that culture, when they'd ride in on a donkey, it was the receiving of somebody of royalty that had already been given their, 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 their spot. And they would ride in as a sign of peace on the donkey. And so I think part of the Jesus riding in this donkey, he's saying... I'm coming to take my place among you that has already been given to me um, as he comes in on peace. The second reason I, I think that he's um, declaring his kingship is um, it's interesting, this whole little exchange here where he says, go into the town, remember, and you're going to find a donkey. I mean, I always think, how did they find him? There must have been donkeys all over the place, you know? How'd they know that was the one? But they, they find this thing, and he says, you're going to meet a guy, and he's going to say, what are you doing with that? And you should say, the Lord needs it, and he'll say, it's okay. And they go. And then it says, the whole story goes, they went into the city and they found a donkey. The guy came out and they go through this whole thing. And what was that all about? Well, if you were were a king, you owned everything. Everything is yours. And everybody understood that. And so a king could come along at any time and say, I want your vineyard. I want your house. Um, I want your wife. Whatever they do, they, they owned it. And so when they would say, give me this, the answer was yes, take it. And so there's a sense that Jesus sends him in, 
And the guy says, what are you doing? He says, the Lord, the king, the Lord has need of it. And his answer is, it's his. Why? Why is it his? Because he's the king. It's, 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 he already owns it. He owns everything that's there. And there was some kind of sense that he already knew that. Um, and then the last reason I think that Jesus is saying that he's already declared his kingship is um, when the people are shouting out these hosannas, which were words that were shouted to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom, and the Pharisees say, tell them to stop it. Quit saying that. What does Jesus do? He says, if they stopped, even the rocks would begin to cry out. And it's because um, they were declaring the truth. And so almost the first time publicly, Jesus embraces the declaration that I am the one that you've been waiting for. And he makes, he lets the people make a public declaration of what was already true. So I think, actually, as Jesus rides in, um, I think he's offering himself, and we know that he's rejected, but I think there's a declaration that I am your king. I'm not waiting to be given the kingship. It's already mine. Um, it's going to look a little differently because you guys aren't going to receive it, but I think he's already made himself and declaring himself the king. He's said all through the Gospels, the kingdom of God is where? It's right here, right in your midst right now. And he makes a declaration here that I am the king, and I'm writing in. And uh, unfortunately, here the people, although they're in their words, are seem to be receiving it. In their actions, they end up not really embracing it. Um, ultimately, they reject it. Second of all, thing I want you to note here is there was huge expectations of what would happen at this time. As I said before, during the Passover, they would sing or read uh, Psalms one thirteen through one hundred and eighteen. Um, they were usually said during the Passover as well as during the Feast of Tabernacles. They're called the Hallel Psalms. Um, Psalms of Ascent, some of your Bibles will say. Um, And they were all messianic. They were all declaring the coming of the Messiah, the one who would save them. And the people would sing those or recite those over and over again, looking for their freedom from oppression. Jesus comes along to bring an answer to need that goes deeper than that. Um, But they were expecting um, something else um, during that time. But they're messianic in origin. As a matter of fact, if the Romans had understood what the people were saying when they were calling out to them, they would all have been arrested because they were declaring kingship. They were declaring the coming of the Messiah, which is insurrection against the Roman Empire, but they didn't, they didn't really get that, and so they stood back. Um, there was an expectation of political and religious freedom in the coming of the Davidic kingdom. The truth is it had come in their midst. It just didn't look the way they expected it to look. Um, as I said, during this Passion Week, um, during this Passover time, there was always um, expectation and tension and anticipation. And that would be the time when their hopes would kind of go up a little bit. Maybe things will change. And then each year they didn't change. Um, and I think the disciples felt some of that when, they, um, when Jesus died on the cross. Um, there, as I said, there would be an increase in military presence, a lot of tension. Um, and people would have been saying, um, is this the time? That would be the words in their mouth. Is this the time that we've been looking for? Is it coming? And they're waiting. And um, here, Jesus was not the first verse. They've been pro- people came along and other times in the past that declared themselves to be the answer um, and weren't. But there's like, is this the one? Is this the time? Could it be that Jesus did it? He raised somebody from the dead. Um, could it be the one? Um, and they're all wondering that and probably talking about it. As well, interesting that uh, Matthew twenty one says that the whole city was stirred up. You know what the word stirred up is? It's quaked. It's the word for earthquake. Um, it was like 
his presence in the midst of this high expectation, it was just shaken. The whole city was shaken because of this. And so it sets a scene for what is going to happen and what is he offering and what's going to be the end results of this week? What is it all going to look like? And all this stuff is coming together at the same time. Jesus knows that he's not going to meet um, their expectations. Um, he knew that back earlier in, in the Gospels and that he's going to press on with what he's called to do. And then lastly here, the last thing I want you to notice before we kind of focus on one thing is that um, Jesus pushes the envelope. Um, he pushes the edge. This whole week he pushes it. Up to this point he's kind of backed off, backed off. He pushes a little bit and backs off. But here he pushes it. He rides in declaring himself the king. And in each uh, day he's going he's gonna to push and push and push. And the, the religious leaders are going to become more and more tense and enraged about it. As a matter of fact, it says they want to arrest him, but they want to wait till the Passover is over. And so Jesus is going to push things. And I look at that. I mean, he chose a donkey. He rides down from the Mount of Olives on a visible highway. Um, he receives their words and, and angers the Pharisees by saying, you know, even the ground would start screaming this if it wasn't true because it's true. Um, he's, he's not keeping it quiet. Now he's shouting out um, the truth. Um, one, of the fair, one of the religious leaders in one of the Gospels at the end says, look at now, the whole world is going after him, they say, because it looks like everybody's paid attention to it, and um, they don't want that to happen. And he's setting up, um, normally we think this is not a good thing to do, but he's setting up a confrontation. He's pressing for confrontation. Um, and why is he doing that? Because it says he came to seek and he came to save those who were lost. He says, I didn't come to serve, but I came to serve and to do what? Give my life a ransom for many. And I look at this and I think Jesus was in absolute control of everything that happened. With all this stuff going on in this whole city and, and all that's happening and people being stirred up and all these um, factions kind of jousting for position. Um, and in this, this moment of history that everything has been moving towards, Jesus stands there in complete control of what is happening. And he presses things in order to get in the end that he desired. And it's exactly what is going to happen as we see the course of the week um, hold out. He's on a course of sacrifice. He is in control. And he's going to carry out his mission because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Um, and it all begins here with this trip into Jerusalem. So one point of application, I just want to talk about one key word here. Um, the people shout out, what's the word? Hosanna. People shout out Hosanna over and over again. Um, that's a Greek word, sort of. Anybody know what the Hebrew word for Hosanna is? It's basically Hosanna. Okay, so it's kind of the same. It sounds a little different, but it's basically the same word. And the English word is what? It's Hosanna, actually. So we just say Hosanna. Now, it means something, but th we use the same word, right? They just took the Hebrew word, and they just sounded it out in, in, with the Greek, and we took the same thing, and we just say the same. So, and we sing lots of songs, right, that use that word, don't we? We're going to sing a few afterwards, um, after the message tonight. And so we sing Hosanna, and um, the question would be, what, so what does a word mean, right? So when we say a word, we ought to know what it means. You know, if you have young kids, they come home someday, and they'll tell you a word and they don't know what the word means, and you don't want to tell them what the word means. So th this is a good word, but um, we want to know what does it mean. Um, we should figure it out. It's used in Psalm 118, verse 25. Um, I was reading those, those verses earlier in the service um, when he says, save us. He cries out the word save us. The word is hoshana. It's a, the Hebrew word for save us. That's what it means. Um, 
It's actually set up in that the past that gets quoted here where it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the king of David, the kingdom of David. Hosanna in the highest. Actually, it was like a little psalm where they would, um, somebody would shout out um, Hosanna, and then the, the people would respond by a statement. They would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the people would repeat it again. They would say, blessed is the coming kingdom of David. And then the person who started would say, Hosanna in the highest. And they would repeat that back and forth over and over and over again. And so the question comes, exactly what were they saying? Well, the original meaning, in, when they first the psalm was written, Psalm 18, meant save us. Um, or please save, some of your Bibles will say in the Old Testament. It's, it's a cry out, save me. Um, now, when we sing Hosanna, Hosanna, which we'll do, we don't usually think of that, right? We think praise God, right? We think of praising and shouting out praise, but the word meant to save us or to please save. Um, the later usage changed, just like words today, as things get used over and over and over again, they, they change their meaning, and it eventually became more to um, be an expression of praise, like the word hallelujah, um, and it actually meant salvation. So it, it started out being please save, and then it later became salvation is ours. So it's like the answer to the first word. So the first meaning was, please save us, but then it became, when they started using the word more, like, we have been saved. So both. Um, the, the word save, when, it, when you think of somebody saying, please save, what do you think of? Do you think of a drowning man? I like the picture of somebody drowning, and you, you flounder in the water, and you're trying to get up out of the water, and you can't, you start going down, and you're, you're, you're gasping for help. That's the idea of the original word. Um, I watched that movie that came out this year called with Robert Redford, um, All is Lost, which I love that because there's no talking in the movie. I love those kind of movies. Um, it's just this stuff happens, and it's basically this guy is out on a sailboat, and the whole movie is him on a sailboat losing everything. The, the sail, all the stuff goes wrong. The sailboat sinks. He's in a raft. He's struggling the whole deal. The raft catches on fire. Um, it's just a progressive, draining movie of this guy losing everything. And it's called All is Lost. Um, and at the end, there's a fire, and you see a hand, and he's reaching up, and the kind of movie ends at that, point, at that place. Um, that's the idea here, that there's a, the idea behind Hosanna at first was, I am desperate. If something doesn't happen, I am gone. I am lost. And I am on my, my very, very last breath and reach. It's that kind of cry of save me. So it's deeply intense um, calling out for rescue, having lost any ability to be able to do anything on their own to do it. That's what was said when they said Hosanna. Later on, as I said, it became the more, more the idea of I have salvation. I have been rescued. There's rescue here. And so um, they, they, as they go back and forth, it's, they go with both things. Interesting that Jesus... Um, in Matthew 21, 42, um, he actually, when the people are crying, crying out, um, Hosanna, and um, actually, Psalm 118, let me go back, let me just read a couple of verses here, this is worth doing. Psalm 118, verse 22, um, this would have been a psalm these people would have been shouting out. In that psalm, it says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who's it talking about? Jesus. We all know that from the New Testament, he talks about it over and over again. Um, and then he goes on here in um, verse 25. It says, save us. That's the word Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord, save us. And then it goes on to the things that they're shouting out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are quoting that. 
Interesting that before this quota, what they're, they're shouting out, um, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, before that, is, there's a declaration of Jesus. Here's the cornerstone. Guess what's going to happen to him? He's going to get rejected. And then there's a shouting out of save us and an answer of blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us. And there's provision. The stone that's rejected is provision. There's need, desperately save us. And then there's an answer saying, blessed is the one who came in the name of the Lord. That's talking about Jesus coming and bringing an answer for them. And in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus actually ascribes those words very clearly in front of the, um, the Pharisees and the scribes to himself. And he identifies himself as the rejected cornerstone. So for us, what, it might, what does it mean? Um, remember we were talking about brokenness and need and that compassion for the world and a right heart and God's work begins with us knowing our desperate need and we have it all every day. And so I think of, when I think of the word Hosanna, I think of both things at the same time. I think, I need you. And right away, I'm saved. They happen at the same time. There's this, this desperate cry of loss. At the same time, there's a reaching out and there's a grabbing hold going on there. Um, and they, the, the one follows the other so quickly that they become one word. And this cry of Hosanna isn't just praise God, but it's, I'm desperate. I'm cared for at the same time. Both happen. There's, there's expression of need, and there's immediate praise for the response that comes. So we should, when we cry, save me, we also hear salvation. The cry of a drowning man, and then it's also the cry of a rescued man, both at the same time. The answer comes to save comes so fast that all we can do is get one word out. It's Hosanna, and the Hosanna means save me. And Hosanna means thank you for saving me at the same time, because it's right there for us, even though it might not look um, like what it is. I need you, Lord, and yes, you are right there, that kind of idea. So what do we need saving from? Of course, outside of salvation for our, our very life to be saved, we as believers need saving every day, don't we? Saving from complacency. Um, I'm trying to list the ones that I need saving from. So complacency, apathy, self-reliance, anxiety, fear, a lack of compassion, um, distractions, whether those are just good things that are out of are prioritized wrongly. It could be money or relationships, um, commitments and schedules, um, saving from my old patterns, um, saving from a thankless spirit. Um, all those things invade us every day. And the cry that we should have is Hosanna, which is, save me from it. I need you. And at the same time when we say it, yes, he's right there. He's right there to meet that need for us. He answers with his presence, and he answers with his promises. The cross is represented behind, with the elements behind me, um, made provision for our rescue before we even knew we had need. And so it's right there for us all the time. Um, so, um, Cameron, you guys can come back up for our worship time. Um, how do we come into each day? Um, well, just like before, we come needy into our day. We go out in our day needy. But when we also, we also come um, crying out in the midst of that need, and we end our day crying out in the midst of that need. And we also come giving praise because God provides right away his presence. 
And we end the day giving praise because he's right there and he takes care of it for us. We come needy, which is a good thing. We come thankful, which is also um, a good thing. So when we're going to sing, um, we're going to sing songs about our need and God stepping in to meet that need. Um, we're going to sing songs that, have, that are um, upbeat, that have the word Hosanna, and you're going to be thinking, praise God. Think, I need you. Praise you that you're there. Think of both happening. I'm desperate for you. Thank you for being there. And then we'll repeat the last song that we, we learned earlier today as we sing it. And the reason I like that song that we, that we newly learned, it is so upbeat. There is, there is joy in expressing need. When we actually get to a place where we let go and go, I do need you, there's a good place to be because guess what? There's provision there all the time. And so we can do it with a delightful heart as we cry out in our need. As we sing, as, as usual, you guys can... Um, write prayer requests in the cards and put them in the basket there and um, a way to pray. You can pray with each other if you'd like. The table behind me is open uh, to remember that the provision of Christ on the cross. Um, and let me pray. Father, thank you that um, in a single word, Hosanna, we can um, pour out our heart of desperation and yet um, offer praises because you're there so quick we don't even know the difference. Um, do that for us. We need it. Um, hear our cries because our need is great. Hear our praise because we think you are great as well. In Jesus' name, amen.